Hi, I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and what you're about to hear is a free episode of Flashback, the Slate Plus podcast that I co-host with Vanity Fair's film critic Kay Austin Collins. Usually this podcast is behind the Slate paywall, but because of extraordinary circumstances and so many people being stuck indoors listening for things to listen to, we decided to make this week's episode free so you can test out Flashback and see if you like it. Every two weeks, we revisit an older movie to talk about what it meant in its time and what it means now. And all of the films that we choose are available to stream or rent online, usually in various places. So we encourage our listeners to watch first and then listen with us. And if you like this episode, please subscribe to Slate Plus at slate.com slash flashback to listen to the rest of our episodes. We have a lot of great movies that we've discussed in our archive over almost the past year now. I hope you enjoy the show and thanks so much for listening. Stay inside and keep well. Hello, Slate Podcast listeners. I'm here to remind you to take the Slate survey. It will be open through April 1st, and your answers help us make a better Slate. It'll only take a few minutes. You can find it at slate.com slash survey. Hello and welcome to another episode of Flashback, Slate's podcast about older and classic movies. This time around, we're going to be talking about Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, the 1962, I guess we'll call it a psychological horror film. Yes? (laughs) Sure. And uh, joining me here in the Slate studio, as always, is Kay Austin Collins, Vanity Fair's film critic. Hey, Kim. Hi. How's it going? Uh, pretty good, except that <laughs> you picked the sickest shit that we've talked about yet for this show. <laughs> um, a childhood favorite of mine. I want to hear actually about that first of all. Let's, yeah. <laughs> let's get psychoanalytic right now, because on our way into the studio, you were talking about how this was sort of a family bonding experience in the Collins household to watch Baby Jane. Yeah, I mean, it just is one of those, it is a camp classic. And first of all, Betty Davis, I think, is someone that my mom and my grandmother both really loved and so I saw films like All About Eve fairly early in my life and then you know once you recognize an actor if you're just walking past the TV and they're on the screen you're like oh what is this and this is one of those cases where you walk by and it's like what is this but also just I think it's partially because my grandmother has multiple sisters they bicker a lot my mom has two brothers and she's the only girl and she's the oldest but they bicker a lot so and I'm the only child so I'm the only one of these people who doesn't have siblings but the sibling thing in my family is real (laughs) <laughs> it's very real. And I get the feeling so that... So watching the, older people be squabbling siblings yeah, was your reality. And I think that this is sort of like, not cathartic, but I think they just all enjoyed it because it's like them. It's not them. They don't torture each other. But it is them in the sense that they just always bicker. And my mom and my grandmother bicker in a way that, that I think would also map into this movie. Again, not because people are psychologically terrorizing people in my family, But more just because, you know, it's just funny to see the way Betty Davis is in particular in this movie. And yeah, the line about gotta eat your din-din, that's a line that I heard a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Like that was your threat? That was the threat. Behavior, you're getting the parakeet under the dome. Well, it was actually one of those things, you know, those things where you hear your parents say something or it's just a part of their lexicon and then you see the movie and you're like, oh shit, this is where this come from? It was one of those I distinctly remember watching this for the first time and thinking, oh... It seems very intergenerational, too, that it could appeal to someone your grandmother's age, your mom's age, right. and then your age. Totally. I mean, better this than the time that I was a teen and I picked The Shining for the family to watch. That was a much harder movie to watch with my family than this one, I have to say. 
So where should we start with this one? I mean, we could start from the angle of Joan and Betty choosing to do this movie or Robert Aldrich's history or, you know, sort of situating it in the decaying movie star genre that had been a thing for a while by 1962 already. Actually, yeah. Can we talk a little bit about that? I'd love to hear a little bit more about that because I hadn't even considered that context until you brought it up. But you're right. It's totally a, a thing. I mean, I've been thinking about that a lot lately because I know that I talk about this all the time, but one of the chapters in my book, last time it was Robert Sherwood, right? <laughs> the playwright who wrote The Petrified Forest, the movie we right. talked about last time. This time it's the decaying movie star because since I'm writing on Buster Keaton, one of the things I'm writing about is Sunset Boulevard in which he has a cameo appearance. And I think of that as the kind of or archetypal movie about right. the, the silent movie star, you know, returning in this grisly, ghastly state. So that was already, what, 11 years before this movie came out. And there's just so many examples during that period, because if you think about it demographically, it makes sense that generation of early movie stars was all aging now and trying to find new ways to appear in their careers. Right. And after Sunset Boulevard, not necessarily because of it, but certainly in that same time frame, the very next year came Limelight, the Charlie Chaplin movie that's about this, you know, sad clown that's sort of based on Chaplin, sort of based on other figures from the silent era, but is about that same sort of feeling. What happens to the early 20th century star in in the the late 20th century? And there was just a whole wave at that point. I mean, you could even think of uh, All About Eve as being somewhat in that genre, though it's about theater, not cinema. And then things like, I mean, in the sunny register, Singing in the Rain is about that, right? I mean, it's about the 20s looked back on from the era of the 50s, which is not unlike, you know, the way that every generation looks back one generation earlier. When I was growing up, it was Happy Days in the 50s, right? American Graffiti. That was sort of what the grownups were looking back on that era. So I'm sort of trying to put that together into into a theory of, you know, the nostalgia for the early 20th century that happened around the time of the 50s and 60s. And this seems like very much of a piece with that and actually kind of a late entry in the genre. And this would have been a pretty familiar story at the time, this idea of the two sisters from the silent era having a feud, both because of Gypsy, the musical, which had just come out I think pretty recently and had been a big hit on Broadway, right? right? Gypsy being based on the true life story of baby June Havoc, very close name to baby Jane, right. who was a little blonde toe dancer who was in fact, you know, living a sort of abusive lifestyle and dancing on toe until her feet bled and her older sister would grow up to become Gypsy Rose Lee. So that story was definitely folded into, I'm sure, the novel by Lucas Heller that this movie is based on. But yeah, I get the impression that in 1962, the story itself, I mean, how far this movie pushes it and had the weird places it goes to would have been unusual. And that would sure. have accounted for why this was such a huge success, this movie, a pretty low budget movie that made a huge amount over its budget and, you know, was one of the top grocers of that year, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think the weirdness would account for that. But the story itself was almost an archetype at that point. You know, I have a, another weird context for you for this one. Are you ready? Because by the time I saw this, the John Bonet murder had happened. So I remember being really weirded out. And the the more it harps on the relationship between baby Jane and her father, it's just creepy in a way that was immediately creepy because John Bonet had been murdered recently and just the early shots of baby Jane on stage dancing and the curls and the kind of pageantry of it was deeply scary to me you know in a way that like I mean again I got introduced to the movie as like oh my god my you know my mom loved this when she was a kid and it was you know so funny and and so dark and Betty Davis wow but for me it was like Jean Bonnet was like that image was everywhere so I was watching it thinking oh 
this is like already weird and, and gross, but also the, we're going to have to talk about the daddy stuff in this and also with the pianist, the mommy stuff and his daddy stuff too. Surprising like angles of, of this like psychologically that still interests me because it could be a movie that just is about the sisters and about this basic dynamic. But when you throw these other people into the mix, you also have these other weird things going on psychologically. You get an idea of show business that's very (laughs) dark. I think, well, I think that somewhat accounts for this genre that I was talking about, Mm. you know, the decaying movie star genre, is that it seems like a moment, I mean, the Hayes Code was coming to an end, right, Right. or it would be in the next few years, and black and white was switching to color, and eventually independent films would start to take over the studio system, and it was definitely a moment when Hollywood was rethinking itself and its history. I mean, Sunset Boulevard, again, being just a prime example of it, there was a lot of cynicism in the way that Hollywood looked back on itself, and just a lot of truth-telling, you know, in a somewhat grand guignol kind of register, like this (laughs) movie. But there is a lot of truth telling there, you know, I mean, not maybe about sisters torturing each other with dead parakeets under domes, but about the idea that the promise of Hollywood was, in fact, something that was corrosive and destructive to lots of people. And that's one of the really interesting things about just the history of movies, you know, literature or other art forms. They're so much older than movies are. But it is fascinating to think. I mean, you're watching someone like Joan Crawford, a star from the silent era. In a movie like this, like, you know, in the 60s, on the verge of going into color. But it's just the idea that these are people whose careers span like the length of Hollywood in a way. So for them to be in in, in a film like this, you know, I mean, I love I love a meta text. This is why, I, you know, I love Tom Cruise. I love Tom Cruise jumping off of buildings and performing his death wish or whatever he's trying to do. And I love when stars like Joan Crawford and Betty Davis you know, make movies about who we know they are or or movies that are inseparable from their personas as actors. This is also, you know, one of the things that's really valuable about when Clint Eastwood still acts. It's like, there's only one Clint Eastwood. There's only one guy who is that guy. And just like there's only one John Wayne, Hollywood stars are so singular that, yeah, in a film like this, you really feel it. Also, the TV stuff I wanted to talk about, like, TV reviving old stars' careers. Well, that's a a big part of early TV was vaudeville, you know, and people coming back doing acts that they had done on stage 30 years before. It's fascinating. And it was, of course, live TV, a lot of it at the time. So there was this sense that TV was the new stage, you know. Yeah. Interesting to think about it in context of the debates about TV movies that we have now, which feel so much less interesting than something like this, where it's like a Hollywood star hidden in her house forever suddenly has a career boost from old films airing on TV is getting fan mail again. It's like this idea that baby Jane thought she was in the clear. You know, her sister was injured. They were in the house together. They're stuck together like this forever, but there's never going to be a moment where her sister outshines her again. The idea that TV ruins that is just an angle that I'd forgotten about or really wasn't thinking about, I think, in the same way when the film came out. It's true, because even though the sisters aren't portrayed as having a TV at all, TV is a huge part of the impetus for the story, right? Because the movie kicks off and really the first characters that we get to know at all are these next door neighbors, the mom and daughter. Interesting thing about those two is that the daughter is played by Betty Davis's actual daughter. Um, Who I understand from just quickly looking on the Internet was estranged from her. Which is reminding me, you know, that the other movie I grew up with at the same time was Mommy Dearest. And Mommy Dearest is another camp, intimate family relationship, Hollywood story. These are the things that informed my impression of Joan Crawford for a long time. Well, and the fact that 
both of them had tell-all memoirs written about them, right? In fact, Barbara Merrill, the daughter in the movie, is the one who eventually wrote The Mommy Dearest of Betty Davis. The fact that they both had those pasts and that, in fact, they did have very strained family relations and some amount of abuse in their households might be part of what accounts for the intensity of this movie. And for the fact that we still have TV shows being made about this rivalry, this debate, that it still lives on. I did want to say there is a moment actually in the Baby Jane household where we see a TV. We cut from the next door neighbors watching an old film of Blanche's on TV to her watching the same thing, but doing a kind of auto critique, right? Where she's like, he should have held this shot longer or like analyzing herself on screen the way not long before that in the film, we'd seen studio execs analyzing her and her sister on screen and and, and Aldrich pretending. is so great the, the way he weaves in the Ooh. old clips there right isn't that great it really just makes you want to stop the movie right there and go and find those movies and one of them i had never heard of parachute jumpers is no. the name of the 1933 movie that you see <laughs> betty in with a southern accent right. and the, the hilarious framing around that of course is that betty davis the lauded you know really like considered the best actress of her generation as right. far as just pure acting chops has to be framed as this horrible actor who will never make it Which confused me for a second because I thought this can't be Betty Davis that they're talking about this way, even in a sort of meta way. I wondered if they found like a younger woman who looked like Betty Davis to film some fake movie, but I looked it up. And this is one of the really interesting things about the studio system, right? That they can go into their own archives and just pull these movies of these actors and just use them like this. But you're right. I forgot about that moment, which kind of goes to my argument I was going to make earlier on that I think this movie is a bit too long. Like, I think that it would be... (laughs) And it's not that it's boring even. I even like the little Rococo frills here and there. But I think that the suspense would be more effective if this movie were not so drawn out. And that was one of the criticisms of it at the time, most of which I don't agree with and most of which seemed like they have a certain kind of misogyny or almost homophobia. Mm. Like there's an allergy to camp in a lot of the contemporary reactions to it. Not all, but a lot. But... But one criticism I do agree with is that I think it spins out a bit too long. So I had forgotten that she watches herself on TV, actually. Speaking of too long, I just want to quickly get out of the way talking about the frame story because it's kind Mm. of unusually long, that intro. It's kind of great, too. And the credit sequence is incredible. I absolutely love the car crash and then that turning into the written credits. But before the credits, we have that extensive cold open where we see neither Davis nor Crawford. We see the kids playing them as children and their relationship with their dad. We see a moment of the vaudeville show and selling the dolls afterward. And I'm just wondering how you think that all fits in and what you think about that beginning. Because I have a big problem with it. And I wonder if it's deliberate on Aldrich's part or not. And I wonder if you had the same one. Oh, well, now I'm afraid to say what I think if you have a big problem with it. I'm curious to know or what you think. Or a big question about it, maybe, is right. a better word. You know, again, as someone who I just I can't divorce this from the context in which I just first saw the film. But for me, everything here is in the reaction shots that we get while Baby Jane is performing the reaction shots of Blanche and their mother. That's where the story really is off stage. Like and and there there are other things like there's the moment of, you know, Baby Jane very strategically (laughs) waiting until she's in front of a crowd to whine for ice cream and the other, you know, the moms and the other kids. I don't really know what her strategy was. I guess she thought that if she did it publicly, her dad would feel strong-armed into doing it. But of course, it turns people against her, you know, the people waiting for autographs. And that part's, like, telling as well. But I really think it's the way that the mom and the daughter backstage are looking at what's happening on stage. And when the father goes on stage the strangeness of it there. I do have some, 
you know, it's 1962, and I'm wondering how far they would have gone with what feels like the obvious. The true punchline isn't until later in the movie when we see that every single song that Jane has is about her daddy. But even in this moment, it's just weird. Yeah, no, but you're right. I know. I think what you're getting at is like the reveal in the present day or even any time in the few decades after this would have been like that her dad had some kind of sick relationship, yeah, right? right. And this movie, although the song, uh, I've written a letter to daddy, which is performed at se- you know several points. It also appears in the score in the minor key. I always love when that oh, happens man. in this movie. <laughs> but even though that movie clearly points at such a relationship, I think it has to remain subtext in 1962, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it at the very most is kind of a psychological motivation. I don't think it's implied that there was any actual illicit daddy action going on, but it's right. unquestionably perverse. And I think you're right that the strongest shots at the beginning are just seeing Blanche and, and their mother in the wings. But here is my question slash problem is that the little girl who plays her is not good. <laughs> <laughs> She's not a good singer or dancer. Did, see, I started talking about the abuse stuff because I thought that's where we were going. <laughs> I mean, that wouldn't be a problem exactly. I think that's yeah. just embedded in the text or something. But it just seems important to me that there's supposed to be this kind of equalizing, right? When sure. they're little, Jane is a success. When they're older, Blanche is a success. But sure. in fact, in those early days of vaudeville, there were a lot of really talented children on stage, including Buster Keaton. Yes. Like, there were all these child stars who were doing amazing things, you know? And the idea that, yeah. I don't know, maybe in a, in a small town, church basement or something, that would be an impressive performance. But the idea that baby Jane is a star when she doesn't really seem to have any charisma or talent is a weird part of this movie. And maybe right. it's deliberate because... Certainly when she's older, the Betty Davis character is supposed to be reaching for this past that she can no longer attain. But it seems like the past should have actually been there. And this is actually often a problem with casting children, even nowadays. But I think especially in the studio system days is that you'd get these overly trained children who didn't really project Hmm. any individuality or personality. But Hmm. that little girl is such a big part of the early scenes. And yet to me, it's not at all surprising when she whines for ice cream and is awful because she was already kind of awful on stage. It's not yes. as if her winning personality is suddenly belied by the way she behaves off stage. No, it's true. She doesn't She doesn't have the range. Whereas it, it, little Blanche is kind of incredible. She's amazing. She really is the one who I think with the mother, and you don't see the mother again, but who sets you up for some of the really complicated things that are going to happen. Something I did wonder, actually, now that we're mentioning it, I, I think it's funny, actually, that there's just an era before... We really cared that kids were good at movies, I think. I don't know. I grew up with some great child performances. It feels like there was a moment when Hollywood seemed to understand that children could, that people learn how to work with children, or I don't know what it was. But I just have all these reaction gifts in my head from years of shows like Dance Moms, etc. And this is what she reminds me of. Just like the pageant culture that's full of the most motivated, but not the most talented people. That, maybe and maybe that's out. exactly what she's supposed to be, and maybe my well, my complaint know. doesn't matter. But it seems to me like she a charismatic child would give this story a whole different feeling because you would feel like the past that Betty Davis's character is reaching back for was a moment of actually connecting with right. an audience and being a successful performer. Right, and I and I think that that it is more interesting that they were both on top genuinely in the moment of their respective heights that. We do have this whole history of Blanche being an incredible actress. We keep hearing about it. And, of course, you have the adult Joan Crawford performances to look at. But it's true that it doesn't really match up. And I think some of the irony of Baby Jane being forgotten by people would be stronger and more powerful if we'd seen an extraordinary performer on that stage. So much of this is fundamentally about believing in 
Like you believe that Joan Crawford is playing a woman who is a spectacular actress. Not hard for her to do because she really was one, but... Well, and when you see the boiling bitterness in the Blanche kid at the beginning, when she says, don't worry, mother, I won't forget. And that's the last thing you hear her say. You're the lucky one, Blanche. Really, you are. Someday it's going to be you that's getting all the attention. And when that happens, I... I want you to try to be kinder to Jane and your father than they are to you now. Do you know what I mean? Uh Uh-huh. I hope you'll try and remember that. I won't forget. You bet I won't forget. This is something we've talked about before, I think, on Flashback, which is that I almost always have this problem when there's a child and then especially a famous <laughs> adult that that child is supposed yeah. to be for them two to map onto each other, you know. And there's a part of my mind that's always trying to solve that problem and say, do I believe that this kid would become that person? And in the case of Blanche, I actually do. Yeah, we should actually get into that because I really stick with that line. That just the sense of how the future looks for the two of them from that moment to when they're older and the accident happens to when they're older than that and they're together, the naivete or whatever you'd want to call it of Blanche by that point, it is sort of like a shocking arc and it takes me the entire movie to understand all of it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, the way, the last thing I would want to say before we get into the movie itself and Betty and Joan, you know, even that stuff with the studio is great. That's incredibly well done with them watching the clips and the two executives in that long take walking down a studio fake street talking about them. Yeah. But of course, the thing that the movie can't do is show us Joan and Betty as young women as characters, right? It can only show them on screen. And so the way the accident itself is staged is just, it's just so so cleverly done. Everyone makes fun of de-aging, but if they had had that Scorsese (laughs) (laughs) de-aging, you would have seen Betty Davis on that stage as a child. Um, And also when we get to the cutting of the accident, I mean, I think it's all the more exciting actually that you just get these cuts of you know, the hand, the foot, the glamour of the gowns. Yeah, the gorgeous shoes that she's right. stepping on the gas in. Right, like you, you you, cut to those things and those all heighten what's really going on. I think also it's worth remembering just the nature of actors and studio contracts during the period that the movie's about. Because I think, yeah, for our modern audience, it's probably hard to wrap your mind around the idea that you'd have an actor say, my sister has to be in everything. Like, just imagining, like, I don't know, Ben Affleck saying that about Casey Affleck. I mean, they were in a lot of things. They have been in a lot of things together. But the idea of an actor getting to say that is something kind of foreign to us. But, yeah, the actors had these relationships with studios. It wasn't movie by movie, um, and they weren't independent actors in a way. And so, yeah, the quandary at the beginning of this is really sort of a quandary for the studio to be stuck with an actor that they don't want in order to keep the actor that they value is really quite something. It feels like a fake problem now, but it's got its eye on some of the things that are weird about the Hollywood studio system in a way that I actually really value even more the more I learn about the system, more than I learn about movies. And that's, that's why it seems like it was a short-lived period, right? Yeah. You get the sense that there were just maybe two or three bad movies that yeah. Jane made, and then the accident happened and both of them stopped making movies forever. Forever. So let's get to where we first come across the two sisters in their household, because the entrance of Joan Crawford's character, Blanche, 
as Joan Crawford is is so beautifully done, yes. I think, because it's this shared viewing that's happening. This goes back to what you were saying about TV, kind of bringing back this era for people and being this new way to watch in your home. So you see the next door family, the Bates, who interestingly, seem, it seems to be just a mother and daughter, right? I love just the absolute absence of men from this world. Like, we sort of have to assume in this era that there was some, you know, madman type guy holding up that household with his income, but we never meet but him. But where is he? Everyone's got daddy issues in this movie. It's the thing, right? So the Bates are sitting there at home watching Blanche Hudson um, in one of her old movies. It's actually the 1934 movie Sadie McKee, the Joan Crawford film. And then we just get this smooth cut to Joan herself watching. And I just love that suddenly we see her face watching herself. That scene is it's a beautiful transition from the introductory world of this movie to the claustrophobic mansion world. And it's also just, you know, just these single shots of Joan Crawford with this look of I mean, depending on what your impression of Joan Crawford is, I mean, for me, she was someone who always got described in these grotesque terms. But when I actually watched her things, I found her to be an incredibly sensitive and wide ranging actor. But I'm always sort of surprised by her face in this because I don't know, I guess I'm overwhelmed by the extent to which she is like the good sister to an extreme degree to like a naive degree, like the openness of her face as she's watching herself on TV. Really, the only time you see her happy. I know. The movie doesn't let it last. Then we get back to the like the Joan that I'm a bit more familiar with, but just incredible watching her watch herself and sort of, you know, navigate her space. But the movie doesn't do this whole thing where you build up to the fact of them having a very damaged relationship. We're already there. It's already as of they've got the TV now. She's watching herself on TV. And here comes Betty Davis (laughs) and to ruin the fun in big, scary makeup and I want to know what you make of Betty Davis' performance in this, because what is so extraordinary about it for me is that Betty Davis is very much one of those stars who, kind of like any of the stars that we have now, like Meryl Streep or George Clooney or Brad Pitt, people like, I've seen them so much, I know their lexicon of gestures or, you know, no matter the wide ranging characters they play, I know them, I, I just know how they emote, I know how they do things. But Betty Davis defamiliarizes herself in a way here that just always really gets me. It's like she knows the ways that she's been rendered grotesque or camp throughout her career, through even performances like All About Eve, like the drunken party scene. She's like leaning into that Betty, but with this makeup on that is just completely... Just who are you looking at? <laughs> yeah, it's such a performance. I mean, it's, you know, you could argue that she, that they're both trying to outact each other and that there's a ton of overacting. But then we right. get into like the world of what is camp and what is deliberate. And I mean, I'm sure we'll be talking right. about that throughout this conversation. Right. But just to start off, I mean, I would just say that Betty Davis's performance, I completely understand. And I'm sorry, memory of Joan. I'm looking up to heaven to apologize. But I see why Betty Davis got the Oscar nomination. I and know. Joan Crawford didn't. I mean, it's just it's so much a showier role. And it's kind of a visionary performance. I mean. I mean, it right. goes beyond lack of vanity, yes. deglamorized, et cetera. But I mean, come on. Betty Davis just takes it down such a crazy road that it's like avant-garde. It's clown <laughs> makeup. And the way it's she incredible. talked about her makeup at the time, her vision of the makeup, which she designed herself, like it was not the makeup artist that decided to make I her look this that. way. Yeah, she insisted on, I don't know if she literally applied it herself, but she kind of like envisioned it. And her backstory to the makeup is that she said, I imagine Jane Hudson as being someone who never washes her face. She just puts another layer of makeup on do it every day which is so gross but it is is so exactly exactly how she looks right (laughs) 
<laughs> and apparently when Barbara Merrill, her daughter who plays the neighbor, saw her in her character makeup, she said, Mother, you've gone too far this time. Oh, my gosh. I do think that the Academy should have just nominate them both, please. Like, when you can end a war. <laughs> right, no, just out of sheer, right. <laughs> you know, like, why not, you know, Diplomacy just, alone. Yeah, I mean, they both are playing with ideas of themselves, but Betty is the one who's letting it just, I mean, kind of literally hang loose in a way. And I think part of what's really extraordinary is that there are things where if it hadn't been these two stars with the relationship to each other that they have and with the relationship to Hollywood history that they have. Like, does a movie like this, it might be fun, but does it tingle as much? Is it as strange or meta or whatever with different actors in it? For me, it isn't. It kind of needs these two people, and it needs someone like Betty Davis. But also, Joan is doing the same thing in the opposite direction, just being completely aware of who she is on screen to us. I mean, I can see the through line from... All About Eve, that woman, that actor, to this actor. It's a 12-year gap, but I can imagine the things that happened in those 12 years. Like, I, I can imagine how she got, particularly, again, at the height of the party scene in All About Eve, and also that movie being, again, about, um, in many ways, insecurities, the one-upmanship within the industry, etc. There's just something about the consistency between earlier Betty Davis and the role she played on screen, and this woman, while also being so grotesque that it just feels like deep end. But I mean, just the way that they interact in that opening scene, you know, like the rhythm through this movie of the bringing her meals, and also, I gotta say, I'm with baby Jane on this one, that buzzer is freaking aggravating. <laughs> well, the sound design is fantastic. Oh, because it's amazing. It sounds as if it's recorded in some different kind of stereoscope or something. Yeah. It's so grating, right? It is so grating. It is the thing that does not justify Baby Jane's behavior. Blanche, you just, you got to push it like once or twice. And they heard you. <laughs> and they heard you. And they're coming. <laughs> you know, like. Well, something that that buzzer scene establishes on the moment when she's watching TV and then her sister has to come upstairs is the geography of the house, which is incredibly important. Yes. Right. And it's going to become almost like a stage set. It yes. is cinematic the way that the camera moves through it and, and treats it. But we have to know it as well as, you know, the set of a stage and those few rooms and how the staircase is positioned and how it's going to be so hard to get down the steps later for the paraplegic yes. Blanche. And all that stuff is established with that initial interaction that they have. No, that, that's so true. And that's something that I feel like doesn't get talked about enough is the way that a film orients you in a space. We've done a few films at this point that have made a lot of stairways and just view, you know, I'm thinking of The Magnificent Ambersons. I'm thinking of Gaslight, just like these films that do really good jobs of orienting you in a space such that just a shot looking up the stairs toward a room knowing what room that is mm -hmm. is powerful for or psycho an think of the the role the stairs play in absolutely that movie. psycho made right around the same time as this actually which is so strange right to think about but yeah you're oriented in the space in a very particular way and and we'll get to this later the movie surprises you by then showing you that downstairs where you know baby jane sort of has the world to herself the mirror, the stage lights, the things that I'm not really aware of yet in the movie that prove shocking to me when I see them. But this is a space that I come to understand very well, you know, through repeated shots, repeated angles, and just a very keen sense of how to design the house and how to move us through it. But also, it saves some surprises for us in terms of 
that house and the ways that Jane in particular has inhabited it in the spaces that Blanche can't access. Right, because they each have their own floor, basically. I right. mean, this movie could double as a kind of plea for disability rights, right? I mean, because it really does. If they had just had an accessible house, none of this plot would have had to happen. It really does. I just rewatched the film um, Witness for the Prosecution, and if you've seen it, there's a a kind of running gag in in that film where a lawyer who's ill, his butlers and his staff install this stair um, contraption to help him get up and down the stairs. And he makes a big fuss of it. But it's a radical thing to do in a movie that this movie goes out of its way to show that Baby Jane wouldn't have done anyway. But you really think about it, man. It's like, damn, so you were just stuck upstairs for your entire life? Right. Yeah. You, you have to ask yourself, what were the previous... 40 years of their life like, yes, right? Yes, I mean, presumably things get worse in this part, so they had more social contacts beforehand. Yes. Well, speaking of social contacts, we need to establish the character of Elvira, who really yes. becomes the only other person who significantly interacts with them in the house. I mean, we do get the, the accompanist way later in the movie. But so Elvira, the housekeeper, who's played by Mady Norman, seems to be the main social contact that Blanche has with the world. And they get that early on scene where Elvira comes for her usual visit and is going around Blanche's room open opening the shades, et cetera, sort of chatting with her about how things are going. And you get the sense that she is really the only person in the movie and in their world who has her eye on Jane, mm. who has, you know, a limited sense. She doesn't know how bad it's going to get, but she has some sense that there's a bad power relationship going on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she's the only person until the piano instructor, right, until Victor Bono. She's the only person who even sets foot in the house, right? She's the only person that's given any kind of access. And I believe it's as early as her first scene that she whips out that envelope full of fan mail and says, look, Blanche, <laughs> your sister has, first of all, been opening your mail. Second of all, not been giving it to you. But third of all, this is how we sort of find out what exactly this TV kind of revitalization has done. Like we get it in the form of this is a, like a new wave of popularity for you in a way. You have new fans now and you have someone downstairs opening your mail and preventing you from knowing. I, gosh, I mean, imagine being someone who's at the height of their career and that ends and you're a Hollywood star. You, you live on in images and the actual image of you, your actual body, your actual self is, you know, on the second floor of this house, never able to go outside again. It's like the TV thing actually is a big deal. Those letters are kind of a big deal. And they're mixed in with the backstory that we don't know yet, but we're about to find out about Blanche wanting to sell the house and move. It all combines into this sort of Jane is never justified, but I see how this all comes to a head at the same time. You love Jane. I can tell you're on Jane's side. <laughs> Jane, you know, I feel for Jane a bit. I do. I mean, I don't until the end of the movie. And then it changes everything, right? And she's the one that my mom went around quoting, so I guess <laughs> I, I think I just identify her um, with family in a way. So at what point is it established that the house is being sold? Is that something that Jane found out from reading the mail? Well, she's hyper aware of, I think, the call that Blanche placed to sort of get this done, because Blanche was very careful not to have anything in writing. But I believe it was established maybe four weeks prior and although Jane doesn't say anything, she's known the entire time by the time they finally talk about it, right? Because she tries to do the whole thing where she says their business partner said their accounts were running low, that they would have to sell the house to stay above ground. But of course, Jane knows better because she's been signing the checks because she <laughs> copied her sister's uh, signature. So they're, they're playing a game, right? It's a cat and mouse thing. They 
They're holding secrets from each other. They're not revealing that they know each other's secrets. And Blanche is really trying to prepare for what would really be this really big rift if she... Because what would Jane do if she sold the house and doesn't want Jane to come with her? Well, I think that Jane is not wrong in her paranoid supposition that they want to put her in some kind of home. No, she's not wrong. Even though nobody ever comes out and says it, I think the idea would be that she would go someplace else. Yeah, which is complicated because this is also the era in which it was like really easy to just, this was recently on my mind, but I've been learning a lot more about just mid-century America and how easy it was just like call a woman crazy and have her sent away or done like shock treatments on. Like I didn't realize how common that was, but it's kind of dark. That's kind of loaded. I mean, she has issues. But her fear is real. But also, Elvira is also right to say, she's crazy, please, we got to get out of here. Yeah, I mean, Elvira <laughs> has that position that the person in the horror movie has, who is the one person who knows, right? Yeah. Who, if had they had been listened to at the beginning, all the trouble could have been avoided. And is the only person who stands up to Jane, really, in the movie. This is part of the reason that the movie was popular in my household, because my mom and my grandma, because I think that it was a significant role, even for the role like within the horror context that she plays of the person who knows. It's a more fleshed out character to me, not in terms of her personal life, but her interactions with Jane. Like there's more of Elvira in this movie than I think certainly any black audience member would have expected of a movie in 1962. And I think it's because she she's standing up to like, you know, the crazy white lady, just my mom my mom and my grandmother. It's like a classic, a classic text of just like a black character in the 60s talking back. And that's like quite a transgressive thing. Like you'd have to get it in a movie like this. That's like a little bit like more trashy. You'd have to get it here where you get the black character saying, no, like you're freaking crazy. Well, and then in a sort of invisible way, it's like the existence of black family and community that gets them caught, right? Because it's the cousin of Elvira who we never meet who sends out the missing persons bulletin and eventually starts kind of investigating the case and they figure it all out from there. Do we ever know what happens? This is skipping way ahead, but since we're flashing back, let's spoil. Whatever happens to Elvira's body? And she takes her in the wheelchair and sort of hides her behind the car and has that interaction with the lady from next door who doesn't find out that there's a body there. But then we never really know. It just seems very unlikely that someone as kind of out of it and frail as Jane could manage to dispose of a body. It's true. Jane is not a born criminal. <laughs> She's very clumsy about all of this, so I, I don't think that she left the body anywhere discreet. She's also not really thinking about the idea of the ongoing police investigation into something like this. She really seems to be someone who forgets about the police until they show up again because she's childlike. She wants to live in certain fantasies of herself and her sister. And this is where the movie, I I think, gets really interesting, those moments where she's actually kind of vulnerable, even as her sister's tied up. This is getting way ahead. But I guess if I wonder where she took the body, I'd wonder, where would a child take the body? I don't even need to see her drag it there. It's just, what is the least mature, (laughs) right? (laughs) you know, option here? I think the next story beat we should get to, and it takes place over quite a while. There's other stuff happening in between, but it's the starvation thread and Mm. the way that, you know, that Jane starts to get power over Blanche by just withholding food or serving her scary things, Uh, which all begins, of course, with the pet parakeet escaping. Uh, The minute you see that pet parakeet in a cage and see Joan tenderly smiling at it, you know that it's not going to end up somewhere good. You know, and you don't even have reason that early in the movie to think that she'd be that diabolical that early 
But it's immediate, right? It's She comes back and the bird is gone. And Elvira says, you know what she did with that bird. Right. But I don't even think Elvira suspected the final fate of the bird, right? At that no. point, we think that, it, that she just let it fly away. Right. But no, instead, it becomes the next main course that she serves to her sister. And that, to me, is where the movie takes a turn. I mean, you know, I used the term grand guignol before, right? The Mm. kind of like macabre puppet theater quality of this movie. And it really kicks in, I think, with that theme of the silver domed meal that's going to have some scary thing underneath. I mean, this is one of the really effective things about this movie, I think, right, is that it's so psychological that the way that it plays out for us as well I find myself considering the question of, you know, meal two, meal three. Am I going to dare open? <laughs> There's at least one meal that I think she never eats, right? And we don't even learn what's underneath the dome. Yeah. She just doesn't pick it up. Right. There's that one. There's the one where she doesn't eat. And then actually that was the time that she did have food. But then she gets it taken away because <laughs> because she didn't dare. And I, then there's the rat, of course. And then there's the rat. Disgusting. I wonder what it must have been like to be in the audience, particularly the rat, because birds that, you know, it's gross, but we don't. Oh, but your pet? Come on. I mean, no, no, it's it's totally gross. It's totally an emotional. But rats to me are a whole other category of gross. Like, I wonder what it must have been like to be in the audience in 1962. Huge screen. And it's a rat. Get get me out of here. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Get me the hell out of here. This is what I mean when I started off our conversation saying this is maybe the sickest movie we've talked about. You know, there's a kind of cruel sadism in the humor that I think both the actresses completely get, but Robert Aldrich gets it too. Yeah. And that's what I like. And I wanted to talk to you about this because, you know, I mean, the term that I saw on Wikipedia, um, which I didn't know was a term, but is cracking me up even thinking about it, is that this belongs to the psychobitty (laughs) <laughs> I learned that term too, but I love it. I, I don't even, I'm not going to dig down the rabbit hole of how recent that term is or how real it is, but there's something to be said, I think, for like, does it matter that the actors are in on this? Because it, I think some people could rightly read it as, as just bad stereotypes. It surpasses that to me by being camp in this way, by being so knowing. But, you know, I, I mentioned to a friend that this is the movie we were doing, and she said, yeah, I've always really wanted to like that movie, but it's just two women being bitchy at each other. And I said, I don't have a counter argument to that, really. It is two sisters being bitchy, more than bitchy. It's more complicated than that. But the pleasure of it is seeing these two stars go at each other's necks in ways that help us because the real life sort of tensions were public. You know, it just does that thing where you see through the movie toward the actors themselves and they're being mean to each other in a way. That's sort of the pleasure. You're seeing something that is play acting at something that feels real between them. But yeah, problematic, as we would say today, I don't know. I mean, I think that you could say in that a lot of the horror, in fact, one of the most horrifying scenes, which maybe we should talk about next, that we see is the moment that Betty Davis's character sees herself in the mirror. And there's Mm. a moment that she actually kind of processes what she looks like, Mm. right? And that we also, I think there's almost like a jump cut, like the camera cuts to a closer view of her looking in the mirror at her full-on Baby Jane makeup. And certainly an argument could be made that, you know, the the humor slash horror in that shot comes from misogyny. It comes from the idea that, you know, an older female body is this ridiculous, horrible thing. The fact is, though, that I think that the movie critiques that notion, right? I mean, in that the person who holds that notion the most strongly is Jane, you know, the person who clings the most strongly to the idea that women must be feminine and pretty is the most destroyed and messed up person in the film. Yeah. And I think there's something to the fact that Betty Davis's makeup is so exaggerated where, again, 
the first shot we get of Joan Crawford is of her looking at herself on screen, youthful, and you, yes, see the age difference, but she still looks fresh and alive in a way that I think the movie is very careful to point out that it's not like some automatic deterioration, but also Jane is rotting from the inside as a person, and also that Jane has these other psychological subtexts that complicate, I think, the idea of this just being about exactly what you're saying. And also, it's something about Betty Davis putting on her own makeup and giving stars the chance to make movies like this about Hollywood where they do get discarded, I think is important, actually, and interesting. Like, I'm exactly with you. I think that the movie winds up being about these things and just showbiz lives and how ephemeral they are. You know, this movie rejuvenated both of their careers in a way, in a real way. It had also started, as you said, the, the psycho bitty subgenre, psycho which bitty. never reached these heights again. But there's almost kind of a sequel to this movie, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. Right. Not a sequel in the sense that they're the same characters, but, you know, it's a similar sort of gothic horror about women being horrible to each other inside claustrophobic spaces. And it was initially supposed to star Betty and Joan, but Joan dropped out of the project early on and was eventually replaced by Olivia de Havilland. And there was a Whatever Happened to Aunt Alice, I think it was called. I mean, uh, this was sort of the day no. before franchises, but just, I think we were talking about this recently, instead of having a franchise with the same characters, et cetera, you would just simply make a similar movie to try yeah. to capture that same audience. <laughs> what is it that you think sets this one apart? Because... I mean, it's Betty and Joan, really. Yeah. I think. And also just like it only happens once. It's one of those lightning yeah. in a bottle things, you know, like how many movies that start a franchise or a series of imitators really have imitators that ever reach that those heights again. Yeah. And and I think that back to what we were saying about like the space itself, I think Aldrich is good at bringing the right amount of gothicism to this. It's not so gothic that it slips into a kind of unreality. I mean, just because I mentioned Magnificent Ambersons earlier in this conversation, it's not like that where the interiors of the house spook me so much that it just feels like the entire psychological maps of the characters are just in the shadows of this movie. It's not that kind of movie, but it is the kind of movie where, yeah, like the the creep and the creak of Betty Davis coming up to her sister's room and the way that she listens a little bit before she enters, um, the ritualisticness of bringing her the meals and the sense of like how Joan is cut off from the rest of everything that goes in the house of being trapped. She doesn't know who else is even coming to the house or anything like that. There is this mad woman in the attic type thing going on, but it it is realistic enough or not realistic, but, but you know, Hollywood realistic enough that it doesn't feel like just sort of empty gothicism. I think that Aldrich finds the right balance. Yeah. And he also doesn't overly Hitchcock it because the like the even the title sequence could be even more Hitchcocky, but he doesn't do that. He makes it his own movie and it's very familiar. You know, he lets the actors overdo it and he underdoes other things, I think. Yeah, you're right. It's not a super highly directed movie. It's yeah. not like a, a ton of moments that you remember what the camera is doing, although it generally is, is taking you down whatever road it creepily wants to take you down. For me, the most memorable shots are the ones that are kind of low angle shots, but, you know, they're with Joan Crawford in her bedroom and just moments of seeing her wheel around, like perform her emotions through the ways that she is moving through her space. And there's that one moment where she just starts spinning in circles. What am I going to do? That's fantastic. The way the yeah. wheelchair expresses her her indecision and her panic. Yeah, that, that it's like a, it becomes a part of her physical performance in a real way. And he does find the right angles to get her face 
and the setting and the wheelchair all happening at once in a way that also feels like the threat of Betty Davis walking in is always there because she could just walk in at any time. And we don't see her bedroom, do we? I don't think so. Unless maybe that's the place where she's looking at the scrapbooks and drinking scotch late in the movie. I'm not sure Um, what that space is. No, but she seems to be next to a piano. So I think that's the living room. Oh, that's all the living room, which I don't think we even do. We even really understand that that's a living room really until she's doing the performance and the mirror and sees herself. Like, I feel like I don't really understand. Yeah, that's her space. That's almost her stage, right? Because when Victor Buono, the accompanist, comes in, that's where she has him practice with her. It's the big floor-length mirror. And there's the poster, the poster that we see at the very beginning of the movie, the baby Jane Hudson poster that hangs there. It's her space, right? She's turned it into her colony. And the doll. The doll that isn't haunted. I just, I keep expecting the doll to like pop to life. The doll is insane. And if you think about the fact that the movie starts off with that other doll, the very first thing we see possibly, I think, is that crying jack-in-the-box, which is just the creepiest thing of all time. I forgot to say that I remembered this as a horror, horror movie. I don't remember it being as funny or winking or just suspense. I remember this being like an outright horror movie. And I'm remembering the things that made me feel that way. But I think it's partially like the doll, like... It's scary. (laughs) I think you class this as a straight up horror film, not just a sort of psychological horror film. I mean, even if you think about the killing of Elvira and how that happens, Mm. I mean, that's almost Hitchcockian or even a slasher movie in in a modern sense. Right. The way that she's dispatched with. And quite sad. And really sad. It's it's awful to see her go. I mean, I really love her. (laughs) She's a wonderful character. A good friend checking up on you, man. Pre Facebook. What can I say? (laughs) Well, I think maybe also we should get into the Edwin Flagg character, who's the only other character who enters into Jane and Blanche's space, the accompanist that Jane hires for her imagined comeback, which becomes this whole thread, right? After she immobilizes her sister, there's a period where, a pretty long period, where Blanche is sort of out of the story, except for that moment, the great scene for Joan Crawford, where she makes herself go down the stairs despite her fear and tries to make the phone call. But there's a long period when she's kind of locked away. And the story becomes Jane trying to restart her career by picking up these costumes at the Western Costume Company and by hiring an accompanist who turns out to be this very weird character. I mean, just one of those people who's individual perversity is so clear that you don't even need to write his character that much. And Victor Buono, who plays him, just brings a ton to this twisted accompanist Edwin Flagg. The person that I think of when I'm watching him in this in particular is Peter Ustinov, someone who I'm watching them on screen and I'm asking myself, are they British or is this an American putting on this syrupy, overly cadenced, overly melodramatic voice for the sake of seeming like a kind of snob. It's just the questions that I immediately ask of him and also seeing him interact with his mom. Gotta love when a movie just takes a moment to let a guy interact with his mom and somehow all of the psychological stuff about this man (laughs) gets sort of put on his relationship with his mother. And in this case, his mom is played by Marjorie Bennett And they're this odd couple, right? But like, I don't really understand their relationship until later when after he's been working with Jane and the mom tells him these things that she knows about her and about how, you know, after the accident, she was found in some hotel room with some guy. Do you remember that moment when he says to his mom, like something like, why would that bother you? Isn't that how I was born? That suddenly like... (laughs) That was so insane that it was almost like it was an improv or something, right? I mean, it's from some even sicker universe. Totally. But it opens something up in this movie where it's like, okay, so there's a moment where he and Jane are playing the piano and she goes into the 
the song about daddy and then she starts talking about how daddy used to be her accompanist and i think that's the moment that flag starts to realize hmm what role am i filling here exactly for this woman and then you know she stands him up on a date and he's mean to his mom it's just all this daddy mommy stuff packed into one movie the back end of one movie <laughs> right it's well, and also, also the suggestion, I mean, maybe it's because Bono himself was closeted in real life and was one of the the many sort of gay eccentrics on the fringes right. in character roles. Right. But that all seems built into the character yes. to me as well, that there's this kind of, on her side, romance or flirtation, there's the sense that she has to be coy and girlish around him and that they almost have, you know, this relationship together. And then him playing that to make sure that he gets his $100 a week from yes. her, right? Um, but him also being kind of needy, like, he, when he's stood up, he's he's sort of sad about it, yeah, right? And he goes off fat. and gets drunk. <laughs> but That's Victor right. Bono is just fantastic in that role. I mean, he's it's amazing. funny you say used to not. The person I was thinking of is Sidney Greenstreet, who mm. is another, you know, big fat villain character actor who always had this sense of excessive seediness. It was almost like you just imagined him walking off whatever scene he was in and just going to do some incredibly depraved thing in a yeah. you know opium den or something like that. But the thing about a lot of these actors, um, and I think they all have this in common, is also just that they, they're good at playing, I mean, you can call it conniving in some roles, but this is a guy who, for a guy who doesn't seem to have it figured out in terms of you know profession or whatever, I love just the sense of being able to see the moment the wheels start turning in his head when he starts calculating things in his first meetings with Jane, when he's like, okay, looking at the side of this house, she's kind of batty. I think I could get away with some money here. Like, I think I can make this work. Like, just, you know, flirt in the right way, like appease her in the right way. And this is someone that I can take advantage of. And that can be my career. And then he goes home to his mom and it's like, wow, your relationship with women and all these things, it's just like he's a weirdly complicated guy. Well, he seems to be also a serious musician or at least yeah. takes himself seriously, right? So he's always making these references to, well, my real life as a composer, right? right. And so that also evokes this entire fringe Los Angeles world where you live in a small apartment with your mom, but you're this aspiring great composer, but you're getting by by playing piano for psycho biddies. It's just yeah. all crazy. And one thing that I like about movies like this is also how they point out, if we take just the three of these characters, there's Blanche, who is the real star, and then there's Jane, who's not very good. And then there's this guy who, you know, whether or not being a serious musician is important to him, I take it to be very important to him. I don't actually know if he's good because part of what this movie taps into for me is a thing that a lot of movies about Hollywood or L.A. tap into, which is the whole mass of people who are just good, who might not really get a career beyond helping the Lady Janes of the world, whose role is going to be as an accompanist, who are going to hopefully, I mean, you know, the idea is that Baby Jane is another extreme where she sort of falls down the deep end. But most people are in the middle, probably. It's interesting, right, that like Blanche is stuck upstairs on the one hand, but she has the higher ground above everyone. She's the only one who's talented. <laughs> you know, I mean, when she lives in the past and watches herself on TV, it's poignant. And when everyone else does it, it's got this sense of desperation to it. And this guy, it's just like, you know, he can sight read music and perform that on the spot, but it's not Mozart. He, so he, he can get by, but is he good? Would he actually have a career? I don't know that that's my impression of this guy. I really think that he needs odds and ends job like this. And he's trying to, he's moving from a place of, I was going to be 
a somebody, but I'm looking around. I'm still living with my mom, so that's not working out quite the same way. So I'm looking at personal ads to work with this random older woman with money. You know, if, if that's where he is, I think the movie's giving us a sense of like what Hollywood is like for most people, which is that they are just good, which is hard. <laughs> and there aren't many movies about that. No. It's true. I have a question about Edwin Flagg's behavior after he discovers that Blanche Hudson is, you know, manacled to the ceiling, yes. dying, as he himself says. He says she's dying many scenes before she actually seems to think that she's dying, yeah. right? And then he's this awful cowardly guy who runs away. And then is it implied that he does anything about it? Or does he go? He doesn't seem to be the person who went to the cops and gave the report, right? Because that would have not given them as much time to get away. Anyway, that's the last yeah. we hear of him, I believe. And my impression was that he flees and doesn't tell anyone what he saw because we never see him go to the cops and we don't hear that he was the person who tipped them off. Well, he's the one who drunkenly sees Blanche tied up into a room. By the way, I, for all I just said about how Aldrich doesn't overly gothicize this, these are the shots of her tied up. You know, it's the shadow on either side of her and the way that she's sort of spotlit in just the right way that just make her seem so contained and damaged and like really looks like it's a lot of pain that she's in. And she looks so frail. It made me wonder whether they shot the scenes in, in order so that Joan Crawford could lose weight for those right. scenes. I mean, I mean, or maybe it's just crazy. makeup, but she she seems so reduced and you just yeah. so believe that she's dehydrated and starving. Yeah. It's really hard to see. It is really hard to see, but he, he stumbles away. See, what doesn't happen, by the way, is I kind of expected Jane to push him down the stairs or something. Speaking of psycho. Yeah, like, what are the stairs there for? <laughs> I mean, what are the stairs there for? They're right there. But he goes and, and he um, stumbles out and he calls the, th- the authorities, I think, right? Uh, I guess. You see him go into a phone booth. You never know what call he made. Yeah. Jane freaks because he leaves and he knows that she has her sister tied up and that's why she again we get the covered up body in a wheelchair being wheeled away with the thing. same framing where with you see it from framing. the outside through the windows right it's, it's quite the crazy. one thing i was going to mention about the goodbye to edwin flag the last time you see him he's making that mysterious phone call in the phone booth but i just love the framing that there's a big billboard right behind him about an undertaker <laughs> which I, I i have to wonder did they find that spot because it was a great location with the billboard obviously it was intentional or did they actually paint the billboard about go yeah. go to our this particular undertaker and his name it's so good i have to tell you the whole phrase on the billboard is for undertaking utter mckinley understands oh my god that's classic <laughs> was that there I don't know. I mean, the locations that Aldrich does find when he takes the movie out of the claustrophobic house are all pretty incredible. I have yes. to assume that, you know, that they were all deliberate locations. And if you think about Kiss Me Deadly, mm. I mean, to me, the other big film I associate with Robert yes. Aldrich, the Mickey Spillane kind yes. of noir crime movie, it also uses real L.A. locations in this very specific way, right? In fact, apparently the stretch of beach that we're going to get to soon where the, the two sisters end their story is the same stretch of beach that if you remember the scene of the explosion at the yes. end of Kiss Me Deadly and it's seen from a view on the beach, it's that same spot that he, I guess, liked to return to. Oh, good to know. Interesting. I got to rewatch Kiss Me Deadly. He's an interesting director of like good pulpy stuff like this. And a real journeyman. Like he yeah. made Westerns. He made a biblical epic, you know, but they all have a very specific flavor that I, if I wanted to say what they all have in common, it's this kind of, you know, just like a force of like pulpiness, sort of pulpy and proud, yeah. you know. He's quite something. And he makes, he's not someone who is like moving the camera in these radical ways or showing off in certain ways. He knows how to frame things in the right way and with the right editing rhythm, make them just 
stand out psychologically as these key psychological pinpoints. Like, for example, the, the one that really stands out is the one we talked about, which is the moment we get the reverse shot of Jane looking in the mirror at herself. It's just like perfect framing, perfect reaction, and just perfect way to introduce us to the idea of that about her. He's really good at all of that. And yeah, and to your point, by the time you get to the beach, by the time they've escaped, the amount of time he spends on the beach letting Jane sort of run wild, but always sort of letting us be aware of that black speck <laughs> that is Blanche. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the camera finally starts to move out. Yeah. And we mentioned earlier when I was saying there aren't many individual shots, framings that I remember, one that I do comes in very near the end in that long period when, you know, Jane's kind of freaking out, wandering the beach, and poor Blanche is just lying there in her dark blanket, just basically dying, right? Basically we don't know dying. whether she's dead in the last shot She's like or something not. out of a Zola novel. She's just like, <laughs> she's just decaying right there but there's a very high shot almost like it's from a crane you know or even from a a, it would be from a drone nowadays or something (laughs) where you see the whole stretch of the beach and you see the surf coming in and you see this little figure dressed in white that's jane kind of wandering down the beach this isn't at the very end when the cops are after her but just a moment when she's kind of frolicking alone on the beach and it's a it's a big jolt because everything has been so tightly tied into these sisters' faces and close-ups and inside their house. And to suddenly get this perspective, it gives you even more of a sense of how, well, how doomed this this attempt to escape is going to be, yeah. right? How completely open they are to public display and also just sort of how lonely and lost they are. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because it's like how lonely and lost they are. I do think about the two of them. It's weird. Like, this is the point at which... Despite all the things that have been happening for the last however long in the film, it's really around the time that Jane first gets a little scared about the potential of the police coming. And she, you realize the extent to which she depends on Blanche in a way that by the time we get out to the beach, I feel sad for both of them. Like well, I feel one of the things Blanche says on the beach is, if I die, you'll be alone. Yeah. Right? And it doesn't seem to sink in. I don't think Jane has really grasped the idea. At this point, she's really far gone, right? Like, she really is in her fantasy world. Yeah. Because earlier in the movie, she's been able to sort of get with it enough to go to Western costume and pick up her costumes and sort of right. function as a normal person in and the to world. to ask everyone, I don't know if you know me, <laughs> but I'm Baby Jane. Right. And I mean, be like, what? she's detached from reality, but she is in some ways a functional adult. But at the end, she really seems to have regressed totally to childhood, yes. right? With the ice cream cones, etc. I mean, to such a degree that it really is pushing, like, the pathos buttons really, uh-huh. really hard. And it really, I think, is only because Betty and Joan at this point have so won me over that I'm not at all rolling my eyes at the end. I'm totally legitimately moved by their plight. Yeah, me, me too. It's weird, right? I'm, but this is one of the things that I really love about, you know, I've, I'm a firm believer in the ability of kind of genre trash or, or, or things that aren't trying to be totally respectable classical narratives at their ability to get at these feelings better than many attempts at the more classical, you know, respectable Hollywood version of these things. Because I really think it's because of how far the movie goes that when we land on that beach, there's something about the blaring whiteness of the beach. Again, like what you're saying, like in contrast to the darkness within the house, it just puts everything into relief. And I feel like I'm seeing them together in the same space in a really sad way. Well, like exposed to the elements. Yeah. And they're all surrounded by these young people. I mean, literally in that last shot where they start to gather around, but 
even just when they're lying on the beach, there's just this sense that no one notices them because they're old. You yeah. know, they're not worth noticing. They're invisible to all these and sort no of healthy them. volleyball players surrounding them. Absolutely. And what's more, somehow within the space of the scene, Aldridge also, you know, there's like the black line cook that I have a sense of. I have the sense of the two cops. Like, oh, yeah. The little, the little community established at that ice cream stand is amazing. It's incredible how much of that stands out in the context of this scene. But then. I'm still trying to work my mind around the confession. <laughs> Which was hinted at earlier, right? It was, yes. And I, I confess, I have not seen this movie. I had not seen it in a long time, probably 20 years. So I had no idea what the twist was going to be. And when Blanche hints earlier on in the house that there's a different version of the story, I thought it was going to be either something about their dad or mm-hmm. somebody from the studio. I Basically, I thought there was going to be a man involved yeah. who was driving the car. Well, but the whole I feel like the whole movie sets you up. There's something with men and dads and whatever in this movie that, yeah, you... You expect, I think, something along those lines. Also because the story, just from a Shirley plot point of view, which is kind of something ridiculous to bring to a movie this extreme and melodramatic, yeah. but the story that Blanche tells makes no sense. Like It makes no she, sense. <laughs> she crashed the car and paralyzed her spine, right? Whatever she did was bad enough that she would never walk again, and yet she somehow got out of the car, dragged herself to where exactly? Like, how did she create a credible fake story of what happened? This is why I've asked, because... I had forgotten this part of the movie, but as soon as I got to it, all the questions that I originally had first few times that I saw it suddenly came back. And I'm trying to remember if these were things that I like would have asked my mom, but I think I hated being the kid who's watching black and white movies with his mom who's asking dumb questions um, of the adult. <laughs> so I don't think I ever said it out loud, but my initial read, even as a teen, was, oh, she's just saying that to like calm Jane down. There's no way that this completely implausible and ridiculous story (laughs) is true, even though the credit sequence is vague enough in terms of the bodies that it could be true, I guess. mm, I don't know. You weren't driving. You were too drunk. I wouldn't let you drive. I made you go open the gates. I watched you get out of the car. You'd been so cruel to me at the party. Imitating me. Making people laugh at me. I watched you get out of the car. I wanted to run you down. Crush you. But you saw the car coming. I hit the gates. my spine. And then Jane runs away, goes and holes up with a stranger in a hotel for three days. Which is the story so drunk, that we, I want to, where are those flashbacks? <laughs> <laughs> like, what is this whole Bonnie, you know, just give me that story as well, please. In I the many spinoffs I would like, Elvira's right? home life, or Edwin Flagg's home life, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I guess because it feels so far-fetched, my read had always been this is the sort of lie you tell someone that you think is mentally unwell because reality isn't what they need. Reality is not going to help them. What you want is to help them calm down or to save your life. So you get them to calm down. You tell them whatever they want to hear. Also, you know, there's that detail from when the studio execs are talking. They pass by the car and they make a point of saying how big the car is and why do they need to make cars this size? 
So I guess there's a part of me that's thinking, okay, how just from crashing into the gate a little <laughs> in this huge car, how did you make, you know, I don't know, whatever, you know, physics, biology, we don't have to get into it. <laughs> it's just a movie. It's not a neat way to tie this up, but I don't really need one for this movie. It's too extreme to... Right, and psychologically it's true, right? Yeah. I mean, the truth that it reveals is one that we've been waiting the whole movie to hear, which is some sign of hostility from Blanche, right? I yeah. mean, she's the one who said as a child at the very beginning of the movie, I'll never forget mother, and yet she's been this incredibly passive victim the whole time. Yeah. You know, something that Joan Crawford is amazing at playing in this kind of sadomasochistic bottom, you know, yeah. that she is throughout the whole movie. But you've been waiting for her to have that moment of rage and hostility and even when she's telling the story, she doesn't have it. She tells the story very lovingly and knowing that it's probably going to be her last words. Yeah. You know, but at least she's looking back at this one moment where she felt murderous rage and expressed it. Right. Now you realize she's been kind of atoning this entire time. But God, of all the ways to like atone for an error in which no one got hurt but you. So, I mean, Jane says it like we could have been friends. <laughs> it's quite sad. And I think that's the reason that makes the ending worth it. It's like Jane taking this in. It hits at something. It, it allows her to sort of live further into this fantasy. She has the ice cream cone. She's dancing around because she doesn't have a sense of guilt anymore. Is it because she gets the ice cream cones that she's eventually caught? Like, I can't remember what, what the chain of events is that, yes. that leads to the cops seeing her. Because the cops have been there and they they've discovered the car is they've there they've discovered the car right i think there's like an apb or something and they hear it right and, and then they get another of those high shots when they chase her down right? right and then this is a moment when for the first time in the movie really the public becomes important right the mm. whole time the public has been this imagined thing watching tv somewhere or back in the past watching their right. movies but suddenly for this brief moment baby jane is kind of back on stage as yeah. she was at the beginning right doing her same <laughs> sad is she doing written a letter to daddy or no she's oh, just sort no. of humming and singing and like, spinning in circle letting right. the ice cream melt just <laughs> saying <laughs> Perfectly good strawberry Not ice cream. eating the ice cream. Yeah, and that becomes the end of the film. I mean, the, the very last thing we see is that, again, very high, almost crane-like shot, right? Where in one area, Baby Jane is performing for her little ring of admirers, or at least onlookers. And then the cops are tending to Blanche, who we never find out whether she lived or died. What's, yeah. your, what's your theory? I think she definitely lives... I don't know if she still sells the house, though. I don't know that she lives. I mean, I think as sad oh, as no, it is, I, I really lives. want her to. But yeah. I, she, at that point, I mean, Victor Buono's character was saying she was dying like two days prior before her beach dehydration session. And she really was in a bad way. Well, she's a TV star now. She's living on in the small screen in a way. but In a way, it makes sense that she would not survive because yes. the two of them need each other. You know, I mean, now we have to picture that Jane is going not even to jail, probably, but to some sort of. I don't know, mental institution or yeah. something like that, right? Yeah, because she's got murder and kidnapping. Because, yeah, by this point, I think that the police have figured out that it's Jane who murdered Elvira. So, yeah, it's all pretty sad. But, yeah, it's definitely trash. It's definitely not so, so, so psychologically probing that it sort of feels like any kind of real psychological realism. It's still... I, I like the odds and ends. I like the fact that it's sort of nonsense. Um, because it, what what matters to me is giving these two stars a platform to just extrapolate <laughs> and just go wild. And that's what they do. They accomplish that. Yeah, I think of all the movies we've discussed on this show so far, this is the campiest. I don't think that there is another one that mm. probably not only reads as camp to us now, but landed as camp to a lot of audiences at the time. Yeah, I would say the only thing that compares for me, again, i got to keep coming back to the kinky photos in Condor. 
that are camp to me. <laughs> uh, I do not think in the moment that's what they were. Other than that, I think this is our first sort of camp classic. And, you know, Susan Sontag's essay Notes on Camp comes out only two years after this, 1962. I cannot imagine that it was not the case that there were already, for example, urban gay audiences that would go see mm. things like this, you know, in part to cry, in part to laugh. And that Absolutely. the huge success of this movie in its own time and that it was this sort of unexpected success that way outstripped its budget was not partly due to people going to it because of its over-the-top absurdity. Yeah, I mean, you know, in many cases I would say that I'm glad not to be a gay man in 1962, but this is a case where I would have loved to have seen this at the time. Like, I'm just imagining, like, the L.A. gays of the era, people who know about Victor Bono, who know all the subtexts, who know the work of these stars, also at a time when... You know, for the majority of people's lives, they weren't watching older movies on TV. So the stars really are alive for them as theatrical experiences. They've been watching people like Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, huge, and over the years since the silent era. And now it's come to these two icons, these two queens, at each other's throats in a movie, just like they are off screen. It's like a gift to queer people. <laughs> like, it is so much I, better than feud. Which I is mean, all we have uh, now. yeah, yeah. I, I struggle there. Um, I'll, I'll give the show another chance, but it it misses the soul of it all somehow. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's got the biopic problem where no one can play the stars. Yes. Plus, I just to me, Ryan Murphy is just actual trash, like not interesting dimensional trash, but yeah. just trash. I would say, except for the OJ show, that's how it's played out for me. This, it just, I think it's easy to not really get the dynamics right of this because, I mean, it was so long ago. This movie is 1962. You can kind of get away with, like, the mythology of it and make that into a show rather than really digging at beneath the artifice. I think the show maps the artifice too much onto their real lives and it just doesn't work, which is too bad. But we have the movie, so who cares? Yeah, we have the movie. And the real story is <laughs> incredible enough. We won't even get into some of the aftermath stories about this movie. But if you did see this movie and like it, I recommend reading up on the Oscars the following year because there's some bitchy interplay between Betty and Joan that's kind of indelible. Kind of miss when the Academy, when this stuff was just all less polite. <laughs> to be honest, I don't need a host for the Oscars. I need drama. I need <laughs> people competing against each other who dislike each other, who are fighting, who are stealing people's husbands. Who You know, give me the whole thing. That's what I want. And then a movie about it starring those people. It's literally could not wish for anything better than that. So knowing that I can't possibly top the insanity of Baby Jane, I am at least going to skip ahead to a decade that I feel like we've kind of neglected. We haven't talked about many 80s movies, right? We haven't. We just skipped to the 70s. <laughs> yeah, we keep on gravitating to the 60s and decade. 80s we ignore. I don't know. Well, so I, I wanted to do two things. I wanted to visit something in the 80s, and I wanted to look at something by a woman director, because we haven't done that in a while. And obviously, the further back you go in film history, the harder those are to find. Yeah. Um, but a favorite movie from the 80s, and I think a seminal high school movie from the 80s, is Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And I'm wondering how you feel about doing that for our next movie. Uh, perfect. I also have not watched that since I was younger. And gosh, I... I'm wondering what it's going to be. Is it going to be like when we watched John Hughes movies now, and we're like, Wow, why were we laughing at that? I suspect not. As a as a heckerling, like I believe in her, I trust her. I'm sure that this will be a movie that will that will hold up. I mean, it certainly is a movie that was incredibly influential, yes. right? And in the high school movies to come afterward. Unfortunately, not in the sense that it was directed by a woman. Not yeah. many movies, although Valley Girl is an exception. Martha Coolidge and, and her classic. own Clueless, but it really is fewer 
Yeah, but there was think? this moment, right? There was this moment yeah. in the 80s where there were some really great movies about young people, often focusing on a girl's story that were directed by women. Yeah. And uh, and Fast Times, I think, is, well, it's A, it's the easiest to find on streaming. Also, I think, is one that really formed a lot of movies to come. And, of course, you get to see baby Sean Penn doing his thing as Jeff Spicoli. And there's just there's lots to, to talk about in Fast Times. Yeah, I remember it being a very good movie, so I'm excited. So, yes, we will convene in two weeks to talk about Fast Times at Ridgemont High, directed by Amy Heckerling. And you can find that on Amazon, iTunes, Hulu. I think you can pretty much find it at any normal streaming platform. So um, be sure to watch that one, and we will talk to you all in two weeks. Our producer, as always, is Chow Tu. And you can write us, as always, at flashback at slate.com if you have any feedback or ideas of movies we should talk about in the future. We always like to have a backlog. For K. Austin Collins of Vanity Fair, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks so much for being a Slate Plus subscriber and for listening to Flashback. And we'll talk to you all in two weeks. <laughs>